coming out of Romans, chapter 12, verse 3 through 8. And God's words reads, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think highly of yourselves more highly, think himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does act of mercy with cheerfulness. This is God's word. If you have not figured it out already, God's ways are not like our ways. He never writes the script the way we would write it. He doesn't use the people we would use. When we would think to go right, he says, go left. His ways are not like our ways. And and unless unless you are in just flat-out denial, when you discover that truth, you soon conclude that his ways are far better than your ways. One such example of this is the church, the bride of Christ, this building that Peter calls her that is, that is being built up and established into a, a holy temple. This organism that belongs to Christ is not set up, not established, or run the way you and I would run it. The church, in that regard, then, is countercultural. It, it flies in the face of societal norms and expectations. The church is different than the world because the church is supposed to be different. <laughs> supposed to be different than the world. She is to be distinct, for, for that is inherent in her, in her Greek name, the ecclesia which means the assembled, called-out ones. When the church looks no different from the world, she is no longer living in light of her calling. And when that happens, you and I, the church, no longer salt, we're no longer light, we can, we can no longer be that beacon on a hill that, that unbelievers look to, we can see a testimony of Christ. Brothers and sisters, Christ has set up his church so that we would stand out. He forms and fashions her and, and gives her adornments that cause the world to to look in and looking at the church and ask, how is that possible? Why do they behave like, like that? 
This is what Jesus told his disciples was supposed to happen. In John 13 and 35, he says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If what? If you have love for one another. This is, this is love towards those who look different than you. Love towards those who perhaps are in a different social bracket than you. Those who have different skin color than you. People from the outside look in and say, how do those people have love for one another? They're so different. God says, this is how they'll know you're my disciples. By the love that you have for one another. We see this playing out in Acts, in Acts chapter 11 in Antioch, where they are first called the disciples, I mean, first called Christians. What happened was there was a group of, of people in Antioch who, follow, who were followers of the way. And they were a diverse group of people, and they were doing things that seemed abnormal to the culture, loving one another and, and serving one another diligently. And outsiders looked in and said, they are Christians. They are distinct. They look different. They are Christ followers. What made them so unique? What caused outsiders to look in and question? Well, it was their diversity. Their, their, their unity in their diversity. Brothers and sisters, that is a distinguishable mark of the Christian community. People are intrigued and, and dumbfounded and astonished and whatever other adjective you want to use when they look in and see a group of diverse individuals unified and functioning together. Jesus says when men and women look in and see that, they will glorify me. And so if our unity, so if our unity in diversity proclaims to the world that we belong to Jesus, then don't you think we ought to be good stewards over it? We, we, we ought to pursue unity and understand how God expects us to act in the midst of our diversity. Not so that people can look in and glorify us, but so that they can look in and give glory and honor to God. And that is what Paul is getting at in our text. That is, that is what we will see in our text through, throughout the first 11 uh, chapters of Romans. What Paul doing is laying for us a solid foundation, theological foundation, explaining to the Romans their right standing before God. He, in reality, unpacks for them what he stated back in chapter 1, verses 16, 15, uh, 16 through 17, where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. 
as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is what Paul has been unpacking, unpacking throughout the first 11 chapters of Romans. And by the time he gets to chapter 12, what he wants to do is give us some practical implications of these truths that he has just unpacked. And that is where we find ourselves this morning. Let's ground ourselves a little bit in the city of Rome. Rome was a diverse city made up of various ethnicities. And, and Rome, you would know, is, is far, was far from Jerusalem. And therefore, a majority of its citizens were, were non-Jews. And, and Paul refers to them in his letter as the Gentiles. And you can imagine that as the gospel makes its way into Rome, not sure who took the, the gospel and how the gospel got to Rome, but it, it spread to, to Rome. And you, you can imagine that as, as Christ is proclaimed, both Jews and Gentiles come to faith in Christ. They are saved. They, they, they now enter into the church. They enter, enter into community with one another and begin doing life together praying, and, and studying the Word together, sharing meals with one another. But, but like any gathering, like any gathering of Christians who spend a, a great deal of time together in close proximity, what happens? Sin soon starts to rear its ugly head. And and the Christians in Rome were no different. Their unity, their unity around the gospel, Jews and Gentiles together in one church was now in, in jeopardy if they did not give attention to it. Paul knew that, that, that gospel witness, that a gospel witness was at stake. And so he gives them a, that theological treaty that we see in chapters 1 through 11. In chapter 12, he gives them three practical steps for maintaining unity. And we'll see these steps in our text. If the Jews and Gentiles were going to maintain their unity, they were going to need to do three things. They were going to need to kill their pride, celebrate their diversity, and be about serving. They're going to need to kill prides, celebrate their diversity, and be about serving one another. Kill pride. Kill pride. There is perhaps no greater threat to unity than pride. Not just in the church, any gathering of people. It will, it will ruin community. No matter how united you think you are, if you let pride enter into that community, if you let it fester, it will destroy it. When pride festers, it's just a matter of time before it all unravels. You, you, do, know, you do know that it is pride that brings most movements to an end. Most movements start out with 
clear vision and, and, and goals and, and meet with some success. And, and then their leaders, what, what happens is their leaders start reading their own press. Soon it's their way or the highway. And then not too long after that, the movement has gone away. What happened? Pride seeped in. It slipped in and it went to work. Jonathan Edwards, in speaking on pride, says this. Pride is the worst viper in the heart. It lies lowest of all in the foundations of the whole building of sin. Of all lusts, it is the most secret, deceitful, and unsearchable in its ways of working. It is ready to mix with everything. Nothing is so hateful to God, contrary to the spirit of the gospel, or of so dangerous consequences. There is not one sin that does not so much to let, that does so much to let the devil into the hearts of the saints and expose them to his delusion. Brothers and sisters, pride ought not to be toyed with. Paul recognizes how serious this is. And in verse 3, here's what he says. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Paul thinks this so significant, he calls on his apostleship to address it. He is not telling this to them as a friend. This is not simply a pastoral concern that he has. Paul pulls out his apostle card to address this issue. Apparently, the Gentiles had begun to think themselves better than the Jews. Remember, they outnumbered the Jews in, 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 in Rome. They... They, they were beginning to think themselves better because they were now part of the faith that was once delivered to, first delivered to the Jews. Paul addresses this in verse 17 of chapter 11. But, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild shoot, speaking to the Gentiles, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Here's what Paul says. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Speaking of the Jews. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Huh. You see that? The root being God himself. You, you see how insidious pride is? They were boasting in the fact that God had been gracious to them. Imagine that boasting about receiving grace, boasting about receiving a, a gift. The Corinthians had, had started to think highly of themselves as well. And listen to what Paul's them, Paul tells them. In 1 Corinthians 4 and 7, what do you have that you did not receive? <laughs> if then you received it, 
Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? <laughs> oh, faith is a gift, Paul tells the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, so that no one can boast. This is how God set it up. He set it up that way. And when you think about it, who boasts over receiving a gift? The person who does that is not thinking rationally. Paul Tripp says, I am deeply persuaded that we're, we're addicted to the pursuit of self-glory because when we look in the mirror, we think we see someone who deserves to be glorified. Instead of using the mirror of God's word to keep our judgment sober, sober, we see an exaggerated version of who the Bible says we actually are. Oh, you know why we do this? We do this for a couple of reasons. We do this because we are self-consumed. We are a self-consumed people. And the world, here's the deal, the world expects you to be so. You, you, you want a promotion at work or to be recognized? What are you encouraged to do? You're encouraged to sell yourself. Highlight your gifts. Make sure you get recognized. Send out a group email so everybody knows it was your idea. We're taught to boost our resume with fancy-sounding words so you're the one that gets asked for an interview. This is how the world works. And listen, I get it. If you, if you want to succeed, if you want promotions, the, the, the world tells you that that's what you have to do. But, oh, brothers and sisters, please be aware that if you are in the world doing that on a daily basis, it is hard to turn it off when you walk through those doors. Self-promotion. Self-promotion rules the day, especially in our social media-driven culture. You are not getting likes and comments then you're not playing the game right. So you need to call attention to yourself by highlighting your intelligence, cleverness, or activism. It promotes a need to stand out individually. We are a self-consumed people, and the world would have it so. But there's another way in which we just don't see ourselves rightly. We, we take ourselves too seriously. We take ourselves too seriously. You, you are Mr. Or, or Mrs. Super Important. <laughs> too, too, too high and mighty to, to socialize with us lower, lower folks, right? Are there are those who can't take a joke? They're easily offended and, and can't laugh at themselves. You, you, you think more highly of yourself than you ought. Oh, brothers and sisters, I meet with, uh, with, with um, some men Tuesday morning for breakfast. Listen, and you, you can't come and, 
and um, with, 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 with thin skin. <laughs> you got to have some tough skin to be amongst that group. <laughs> you got to be able to laugh at yourself. Listen, don't underestimate the, the friendly teasing of each other in Christian community. It helps chip away at the pride that often builds up in our lives as we engage in, in this self-promoting culture. And if, you, if you can't laugh at yourself, or you are quick to get angry when someone, when, when someone jokes with you, you might, you might be thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. You know, when we think more highly of ourselves than we are, what we are doing is we are denying the work of Christ and forgetting our identity. Christ has redeemed us in himself, reconciled us to God in himself, making us one new man in himself. This is our new identity. All of us all of it he did for us and in us and to us. And the only thing you and I contributed to the equation was the sin that Christ died for. That's having sober judgment about yourself. It's seeing yourself rightly as one whom God rescued from darkness and placed into his marvelous light. And this was not your own doing, but it was a gift of God. Oh, you and I have been joined in one body, in union with Christ. You can't escape the doctrine of union with Christ. I mean, it seems to come up in every, in every letter that we, that we engage. You can't escape this doctrine of union with Christ. It's all over the Bible and becomes a lens through which we see the Christian life. All of us. Every single person was, was born into sin and enters into the kingdom of God the same way. Through Christ. That's how we get in. The saying, the, the ground at the cross is, is level, that, that is a true saying. The ground at the cross is level, and there is only one door through which we can enter, and that is Christ. To rebel, we are, we are saved into one body. Listen to the language of unity that Paul uses with the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, verse 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This analogy regarding the, bi the, the body that Paul uses, it paints for us a clear picture. We all, we all have various 
body parts, but we have one body. Humanly speaking, we all have various body parts, arms, legs, limbs, all of this, but one, one body. If someone started saying that they have multiple bodies, we would, be, we would, we would think of them strange. Like, what are you talking about? We all have one body, but, but many parts. Brothers and sisters, the body of Christ is one. And so to rebel against unity with your brothers and your sisters in Christ is strange in the eyes of the Bible. What do you mean you don't want to fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ? You must not want to be a Christian. You can't call yourself one in, because in the eyes of the Bible, there is no such thing to separate from your brothers and sisters in Christ. We are many members, but one body. Oh, it is this reality that Paul tells to the Romans, that they are to think with sober judgment about, think rightly about themselves with, with sober, so, sober judgment. Because when you think about it, to think deeply about that truth, having in mind our union with Christ, a, a couple of implications begin to rise to the top and, and start taking shots and chipping away at your pride. To recognize that we all enter into one body. One of the implications is if I am an individual member of an entire body, then I am not the head. I am not the head. Body parts do not control themselves. There is one central system from which they all function. The body of Christ acts in the same way. We are all members of one body, but Christ is the head. He runs the show. Ephesians 5.23, Christ is the head of the church. Whose body? His body. <laughs> His body. Listen, the reason you and I ought not to think more highly of ourselves is because the church has one head. And breaking news, it's not you. <laughs> and it's not me. Christ leads the way. He tells the members what they should do. He gets the credit when things go right. He sets the agenda. It is all about him. <laughs> that should suppress your pride fairly quickly. You are not the head. Christ is. But the other implication against deflate this pride and chip away at it is if there are many members, then we belong to each other. Paul makes this point in the text, look at verse 5. 
So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually, what are we? We're members of one another. <laughs> this truth undermines pride and arrogance at its core. You know, the individual who is prideful is all about self. It's, it's their needs that they think most about satisfying. So when Paul makes the point that we are members of one another, he is seeking to turn our gaze away from ourselves and to turn it into, so that we are fixed on others and their needs. It is never all about you. You begin to realize when you enter into the body that there are other parts, other members within the, the, the body, and you therefore are saved into community. Christ saves us into community, for community, for the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, if you have not found out already, you and I need each other. We have a responsibility to each other. You know, when you start thinking of others, you, you begin to realize that you don't have, have time to be prideful. When you start realizing you need others, pride vanishes. Um, are you struggling? Are you struggling with issues of pride and find yourself thinking more highly of yourself than you ought? Paul says, think rightly about yourself. So have sober judgment about yourself. Consider your union with, with Jesus and contemplate what that means. And get around the people of God. If you are going to maintain the unity of the Bible, that's in accordance with our calling. Well, we need to kill pride. Got to kill it. Got to do away with it. Flee from it. But we also need to celebrate our diversity. Unity everyone gets. It's unity and diversity that causes the head tilt. How can a diverse how can a diverse group ethnically, economically, socially, generationally, and in this case, giftedly, how can this diverse group of people be unified? It would seem that those who are most alike function best. But those who think that have failed to observe how the body how the body works. Paul hones in a little further on this metaphor of the body and says, in verse 4, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Like the human body, the church is made up of individual members or, or parts. 
Each part, or in the case of the church, each individual is given a specific function. And the body functions best when each of those individuals are fulfilling their role within the whole. Puzzle pieces. Imagine you were a puzzle piece, the finest puzzle piece you have ever seen. <laughs> you, got a, you, you have, a, you have a, a piece on you and your picture is, is fine and it's detailed. The, the edges, your edges are clean and rounded nice, right? I mean, you're the best looking puzzle piece that this world has ever seen. But there's no context. You, you're... Yeah, yeah, we can celebrate you as a puzzle piece, but, I mean, you're just one. <laughs> but when you are placed into and around other piece, puzzle pieces, and their beauty begins to match up with your beauty, and their edges line up with your edges, it then begins to see, you begin to see it coming together. You get, to, you get to see a greater picture. Yes, yes, we can give you glory in and of yourself, but maximum glory comes when all the puzzle pieces come together. That's the body of Christ, brothers and sisters. Paul makes this point to the Corinthians. In, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, for the, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many members. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as, as, as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Paul makes the point, that the body functions at its maximum potential when all the parts are doing what they are supposed to do. And get this, get this, every part of the body has a function. God has set it up that way. There is no part of your body that doesn't benefit the whole. Your pinky toe has a purpose. Your earlobe has and serves a function. That part of the body that you deem um, insignificant has great value because it contributes to the whole. You see why this is such a great metaphor for the church? Every individual in the kingdom of God, listen to me, every single person, every individual in the kingdom of God has been given a gift. No one is exempt. And furthermore, here's it, that gift is useful to the kingdom because it has been given to you by God. Because... Paul has, a, has established already that no one ought to be prideful, that we, we ought to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. It carries over to gifts. 
No one should think that they are more important to the body than anyone else. We all have value, but different functions. I, I love reading the Old Testament, and you hear one of these great heroes of the faith, and it gets to the end of their lives, and it says, and so-and-so died, and then they move on, right? Because we all have different functions, but we're all valuable. And why are we valuable? Because these gifts have been given to us by God himself. They've been given to you according to his grace and according to his, his, his wisdom and according to his good pleasure. Understanding that promotes unity. I don't covet your gift. You don't cover my, covet mine because we, we understand that God has uniquely gifted us for specific purposes. And operating in those gifts accords with his will. So what do you do? You thank God for the gift that he's given you. That's what you do. You thank him for the gift that he's given you. And, and, you, and you thank him for the gift that he has given to others. You are no better, they are no better, but together we are better for Christ's sake. I was listening to a, a, a pastor um, preach on this text this week, and he reminded me of a song that, that we used to sing when I was growing up. It's the If I Were a Butterfly song, and I think it, I think it just pertains so well. to. I mean, after he said it, I said, amen, praise the Lord. Listen to this, listen to this. I was singing for you, but I'm not going to do it. If I were a butterfly, I thank you, Lord, for giving me wings. If I were a robin in a tree, I'd thank you, Lord, that I could sing. If I were a fish in the sea, I'd wiggle my tail and I'd wiggle with glee, right? But I just thank you, Father, for making me me. For you gave me a heart and you gave me a smile. You gave me Jesus, and you made me your child. And I just thank you, Father, for making me, me. I'm not coveting your gift. <laughs> Don't covet my gift. Thank the Lord that he made you the way he made you. And he puts you in a community and desires to use that gift for his glory. I just thank you, Lord for making me, me. We need to celebrate our gifts, celebrate the differences in our gifts, but then we need to be about serving. That's what we need to do, be about serving. Listen to what Paul says. Verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. In other words, brothers and sisters, use, use the gift the Lord has given you. 
This is why it makes no sense to be in a community of believers and not be serving. The Lord has given you a unique gift so that your brothers and sisters can be edified so that we can all grow up into Christ. So the question is, why aren't you using it? Here's the deal. It is not your gift to be stingy with. In fact, false humility with your gift like, like uh, I don't want anybody to know I can, I can do this because I'm going to think, they're going to maybe think that I'm thinking a little too highly of myself than I ought. But actually, false humility like that is akin to thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Use the gift. Be about using it to serve others. This prophecy, this serving, use it to glorify God and to edify the saints. Still with the calling. Still with the calling, church. Still with the calling that God has given to us to be, to be, to be unified, to recognize our diversity of gifts and to, to use them. That is what Paul is saying in this text. Maintain the unity among you. Kill the pride. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Be about serving. Recognize the diversity. Recognize that God has put us together to glorify him. That's what Paul is saying in this text but really even deeper. What Paul is doing in these few verses is unpacking Philippians 2. That's what he's doing. He's unpacking Philippians 2. Listen to what Philippians 2 says. Beginning in verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind united, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Could Paul say it any better? Do we have any better example of this? Not thinking too highly of himself? giving of himself to serve others. Jesus didn't think too highly of himself. He humbled himself. He served. Paul says, church, have this same mind among you. Can we do that for God's glory, for, his, for the good of his people? Let's pray.